everyone and welcome to the first Tech2 Science podcast. I'm Kavya and I'm Abigail. And in this podcast we're going to be talking to experts about some important and interesting stuff happening on earth in space and how it impacts the human race. In this first segment we're going to be chatting about some of the science, pseudoscience and ethical conversations around the coronavirus pandemic, around vaccines and understanding how these vaccines might be distributed among the population. So joining us to dive deeper into this is Professor Anand Pan. He's a researcher in bioethics and global health and policy and ex-president of the International Association of Bioethics. Professor Anand is also among the best people to discuss all of this. So we're uh, really happy to have him on our podcast. Uh, and you're also the first guest on our first episode of the podcast. So an extra special welcome to you. Thank you, Kavya. And thank you, Abigail. Thanks for having me. So for the past couple of months, we've we've been in the midst of a, of a raging pandemic and there's still a lot of uncertainties, a lot of questions uh, as to where this virus has come from. It's among the many mysteries that still has eluded scientists. Uh, and we've heard a couple of theories about what the sources could be. For instance, very early on, there was a rumor that it started in a Chinese lab and that was uh, overturned by a Chinese researcher very recently. Uh, and there was another theory about uh, how, you know, the virus could have... Uh, could have come up uh, sporadically in multiple different continents at the same time. Um, I'm not even sure how that happens, but are there any leading theories as to what the origins of this virus could be? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of theories and many of them are conspiracy theories, as you pointed out. As of what we know, uh, the most credible theory so far is uh, indicating that it's a natural origin. It's not something which has been made in a lab. It's probably also not something which is which was either intentionally or in some way escaped from some kind of a defense lab, either in China or elsewhere. What we know so far is certainly that it's a virus of animal origin, probably bat origin. What we also know is at some point of time in its evolution, it's managed to jump into humans. And then the real challenge has become when it became uh, capable of human to human transmission, which is what we are worried about now. So it's not just the transmission from an animal source to the to a human host, but also the fact that within humans, we are able to transmit it, as we know, in many, many ways. And that is where, um, you know, its risk element has increased. So I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, the best information we have so far seems to indicate that this is just a natural origin. Its virus evolved in a way that it became infectious and also became capable of infecting humans and being transmitted from humans to humans. And, you know, beyond that, if there is anything else which comes up, which is credible, I'm sure we will know, because there are a lot of scientists and governments very keen on uh, looking at this issue. But uh, so far, very clear that, you know, it seems to be a natural origin. And with so many people uh, being infected and also dying with this virus, a lot of people have, are really, like, everybody's scared. Like, everybody's scared of getting infected. And people are saying that by, by the time the virus really dies out, almost everybody in the world will get infected with it at one point of time. So there's a lot of, like, immunity boosting pills and supplements foods that are coming out of it will like strengthen your immunity so is there any truth to that is there a way to actually strengthen or enhance your human immunity to give you like a super immunity sure so you know a lot of this uh, talk about immune boosting precedes uh, COVID-19 right even for any kind of infection any kind of disease people want to uh, strengthen their immunity so anywhere from the usage of herbs to vitamins to zinc um, to you know ayush medications there's been a host of things which has been uh, out there and you get whatsapp forwards all the time i'm sure or, or there is information online or there are tv shows which advocate for that 
we should remember that this is a novel virus you know it's a corona virus and the corona virus family you know has been known for a while and we also know that in many ways it behaves like many other viral infections and yet it is also different so given that it is novel we don't really know if there is anything which really helps you uh, protect uh, be protected against covid-19 so to say that there is anything which is immunity boosting and that immunity boosting will protect you against covid-19 is probably a fallacy yes it's a good idea to try to keep yourself healthy so you know for anyone working on minimizing their stress sleeping enough uh, you know not uh, being becoming too anxious if you already have comorbidity like diabetes and hypertension ensuring that your sugar levels or your bp levels are under control and you know not spiking um, and you keep take your medications uh, on a regular basis all of that makes a lot of sense if you can keep yourself healthy obviously the chances that you will have a serious bout of covid-19 might be lesser but to say anything uh, is effective as a immunity booster is probably not based in fact so far so everything we know so far is generally uh, good for immunity as a as a whole and not specifically for coronavirus generally yeah 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 true absolutely So I I came by a very interesting tweet recently that said something to the effect of the rich are poor in immunity and the poor are rich in antibodies. Uh, and while this is not literal, it does have a kind of association with uh, something that might come about uh, in the near future. There are associations right now like Gavi and in the ACT Alliance under WHO that are working towards uh, equitable distribution of a potential vaccine in developing countries. Some companies have also agreed to distribute this first hundred billion doses of such of these vaccines without making any profit. Is profit making out of a vaccine like this something that is ethical, or is it something that should not be done? Yeah so I mean listen I mean any developing any intervention whether it be a drug or a vaccine does cost money you know you have to spend money in research you have to money uh, spend money on development costs then once you get all of your data then you have to ensure that you put it through like uh, regulatory processes you get licensure you have to market the drug it has to reach an end point or retail point or a point yeah. of delivery and all of that costs money but that having been said you know we are also in a very peculiar situation we are in the middle of a pandemic a pandemic which is global in nature has impacted almost every country in the world and many countries are facing adverse circumstances in terms of its impact so given that i think you know even who and the un has said that any intervention which comes out uh, and more specifically a vaccine should be considered a public good and when you have something which is a public or a global good then you would ideally uh, want to recognize that any strategy you have around distribution access pricing should be in such a way that it doesn't let any population be devoid of that vaccine so that would mean that any pricing strategy would need to be cognizant of that so overpricing a vaccine in a way that only rich countries are able to uh, afford it and uh, you know yeah. low and middle income countries are not uh, would be something then uh, which would be a violation of that so i think it's yeah. fair to say also because uh, that a lot of the vaccine development is based on research which is done in the public sector so you know either it by the nih in the us in india we know one of the vaccines the covaxin is a collaboration between bharat biotech and icmr and the strain has come actually from the public sector the national institute of virology in pune so the government is also contributing to the rnd efforts right and so it's fair to expect that any pricing which comes out then would recognize that in the worst case scenario where it becomes exorbitantly expensive then i think you know governments will have to seriously look at mechanisms they have for ensuring that the vaccine costs are brought down either by yeah. mandating production locally um, by their own pharma companies biotech companies or negotiating very hard with the pharma company 
and i think the role of right. uh, agencies like who etc becomes important in ensuring that that's a really good segue into my next question which is distribution obviously the first people who get it should be the frontline workers because they are literally at the frontline working and helping other people do it so they should ideally get the first dose of the vaccine but then after them should the old people or should the people living in maybe in the slums should they be getting the the vaccine next so how does the government decide yeah this operates probably at two levels the first level being once any pharma company or a biotech company comes out with a vaccine then where do they first uh, send out the doses of vaccines you know we are already seeing that a couple of countries are investing money and in pre buying uh, vaccine doses so the us has done that uk has done that with some pharma companies right and so that becomes a concern then because none of these criteria then become operative it's the country which is getting the vaccine and then they decide uh so obviously that is that is something to worry about because that is an equity question that certain countries are willing to pre buy a vaccine and if those first few batches of vaccines maybe a whole month's production is bought off then you know you will have the rest of the world having to wait for a month more to get that vaccine the second question obviously uh, is what you were alluding to that once we get it into a into a country let's say india is an example then what's the criteria we will use for priority setting or resource allocation once we have that vaccine and you know recently there was this uh, symposium organized by the icmr which was an international symposium and the ministry officials and the niti ayog representative did talk about the fact that they are looking at this issue and they did obviously allude to the fact that maybe frontline health workers would be the ones getting the priority but uh, you know what is equally important is that you need to have some kind of standard criteria this is not the first time in a pandemic that we are facing this kind of a question in past pandemics sars mers um, you know these kinds of issues have been deliberated on and standard frameworks developed you know this is an important question to ask uh, how do you decide what kind of priority setting do you do in a pandemic and what criteria do you use if the criteria is you know those who are most at risk and those who are also most important for keeping services running then obviously you might have healthcare workers on top of that list you might also have uh, farmers at top of that list because unless your food supply is guaranteed it could put um, the country into food insecurity you could also have civil defense forces in that list but then another criteria would be who is the worst impacted by this pandemic virus and that would mean people who are elderly people with comorbidities so maybe they go into the list as well uh you know politicians might want to be in that list so uh what then becomes important is that you have criteria which are objective in nature and not subjective in nature and which are deliberated openly and transparently so that people have a right to appeal then those populations who are lower in the list should have a chance to appeal and say we disagree with this this is why we think with list should be redrawn etc and then you know respond to those so that finally when you have a list even if you know it put certain people lower down at least you've gone through a process of open public engagement on that and then come up with a list which will be applicable as and when more doses become uh, available then you can widen the scope of who gets that vaccine but it's extremely important that this is this be done in a transparent manner and not be done just done in government offices so i think that's one lesson we need to take away otherwise conspiracy theories or accusations about favoritism and political connections or financial prioritization etc will always be there so it's it's very important to try to address that in advance and not wait for the day when a vaccine dose becomes available so the time yeah. is now yeah there's also uh, some interesting talk going on on social media about india having its own anti vaccine movement a lot of people of course we we associate the anti vaccine movement largely with uh, the us uh, but there are also a lot of indian leaders that are not really highly in favor or believe that a vaccine might work Uh, is this something that you've seen in the indian population will this be a problem going down the line 
Sure. Vaccine hesitancy um, and the anti-vaccine sentiment has been around even in India. Maybe not as widespread as maybe it's there in parts of the West. But people have been concerned. You know, there are some people who are just fundamentally opposed to vaccines of any kind. You know, they feel that vaccines involve some kind of deliberate infection of individuals. It has long-term uh, implications. It might damage, uh, you know, you know, the kids who take vaccines. They might get uh, a lot of negative side effects, etc. There are others who are more concerned about specific kinds of vaccines. You know, they have concerns around uh, the effectiveness of those vaccines, the efficacy of that vaccine. Is that vaccine being licensed or marketed or being put in the national program based on local data or not? Is it a cost-effective vaccine for us to use, etc.? Those, I think, are slightly different sentiments, and I think those are some things we should be trying to respond to because they are more based on the science and data and asking of good questions of what's the right vaccine to use for our population, right? Now, with yeah. specifically COVID-19, I think there will be a lot of people who will also be concerned about the pace with which the vaccine is being developed. Everything is now being shortened in terms of the process involved. And so they might have concerns around the safety uh, as well as efficacy of the vaccine, as well as the quality of the process involved in developing the vaccine. So again, you know, similarly, if you don't address that, this sentiment could also grow larger. There might be many people who might then refuse to take a vaccine and that might defeat the whole purpose of vaccination. So it again points to the need to then respond to all of these concerns, point to the fact that all best efforts are being made and best practices are being followed in vaccine development. And that data will be put out in the public domain so that anyone who wants to access it and look at it can do so and feel comfortable about decisions being made, uh, made on sound data. And that our uh, system to capture any adverse events, etc., is also going to be robust. In the absence of that, there will be a lot of people who will be skeptical. And, uh, you know, one option is always to dismiss them as anti-vaxxers. But in my personal opinion, it's much more important to engage and, uh, and talk to them through what their concerns and try to address them rather than, you know, just pushing them away and saying, you know, we just don't want to listen to them. Again, that's a really nice segue into my question, which is in the U.S. in 1976, there was this epidemic like they, they thought it would be a swine flu epidemic but it didn't turn out to be one and the u.s went ahead and vaccinated a people and around 450 people they had suffered really adverse effects as in they had like a neurological syndrome that, and it was uh it was they got they got really angry and people don't trust vaccines anymore for this specific reason because while it might work for 10 people that one or two that had a reaction to it can put some people off. And especially with coronavirus vaccines being fast-tracked and, you know, there's this push to, like, come out of the vaccine as soon as possible. Are there any corners that are being cut? Are, there, are we actually, you know, sticking to all those guidelines, to all those SOPs that have been put out? Or are we, like, overlooking a few? Conventional vaccine development takes many years, sometimes decades as well. The shortest time which has been uh, there for vaccine development is probably a few years. Here we are trying to compress everything into ideally under a year. Um, there are global vaccine candidates. Uh, the last count, I think, was around more than 165 vaccine candidates globally, a few of which are also happening in India. So the concern is very valid. You know, are we pushing too hard and would that entail some element of risk? And the kind of risk you have described would easily derail any vaccination program. If you start seeing a lot of adverse events like that, once the vaccine is out and being used, then it would you know, scare a lot of people and say, you know, that risk of taking the vaccine is maybe more of a risk than even compared to the disease. So the way to try to avoid that actually is doing your science right. And you're you know, ensuring that safety, efficacy, quality is a strong focus in the way we do our vaccine trials. 
And if we maximize those elements in the way we do our study, so even if we take uh, shortcuts on certain parts, so for example, we try to reduce the bureaucracy involved, the time taken for decisions, etc. We don't take shortcuts on the minimum requirements for a scientifically and well-conducted study. So we ensure we have adequate sample size. We ensure we choose the right endpoints in terms of follow-up, the right population, you know, the intended audience for any uh, vaccine which comes through. Ensuring we do science at sites which are well-trained, etc., becomes important. And if we do all of that and make sure that the data is of good quality and also put it out for peer review uh, ultimately and make that results available for examination, then it's more likely that we will have a vaccine candidate coming through which is based in good quality data. That having been said, you know, even with uh, vaccine trials, uh, there's only a limited amount of people that you can test the vaccine on and for a limited period. So the post uh, vaccine introduction into the program period or post licensure and marketing period also is important. That's what we typically call the pharmacovigilance or phase four. And that's where, again, we need to strengthen our uh, system so that when this vaccine, as and when it becomes available, is used in the larger population, that we are able to pick up any risk attached to adverse events. Because once you start using the vaccine in thousands and millions of people, uh, there's a high chance that you might pick up on some adverse events which you are not able to pick up in a clinical trial, which has a few thousand participants. So I think ensuring that our pharmacovigilance is also strengthened becomes then crucial and, and relevant. If, I hope you don't, but if you do find some people having reactions to it, what, what do you suggest then? You know, it's fair to say that vaccines are not completely risk-free. They can be adverse events once in a while. Usually they are minimal in nature. They are also often rare in nature. But they do happen, you know, almost with every vaccine. We've seen that with all the vaccines almost which are used in routine immunization for kids in India. It's also true of the newer vaccines like rotavirus. I think there is sometimes a balance between these very rare risks and the public health importance of having a vaccine and the benefit of having a vaccine, which could save a lot of a whole lot of people. But then you also have a moral and ethical obligation to those who face that rare adverse event, which is to say that if someone gets any adverse event, either minor, moderate or severe in nature, then we should be paying for their care, for their hospitalization, for follow up. For example, they have any adverse event like uh, serious hospitalization, paralysis, etc., which has happened with some uh, vaccines then you have to provide for their whole life essentially because you know that's part of the bargain that as a public health program we are taking a minor risk here but then you know we are also providing or compensating those who face any adverse event even if it's rare in nature whether that is polio or whether that is covid-19 if there is a rare adverse event i think as a country and as a health system we have to respond to that and say if anyone does face that then we will ensure that we provide the best possible care for them and take care of their uh, health and well-being for the rest of their life if it works considering the risks that volunteers are probably signing up for although it's been rigorously tested as well as you know the the long game in the sense of you know having a vaccine a year down the line or probably more is it worth it considering there are treatments that are showing some effectiveness in COVID patients? Is, is it a worthy gamble to put a lot of hope and investment and time into vaccine production when there is an alternative? You know, let's not think of vaccines as, a, as a, any kind of magic bullets. You know, it's not like once you have a vaccine, you know, everything will be uh, okay. And, you know, as you are rightly pointing out, we don't know when we will have a vaccine. Uh, the earliest people are predicting is maybe by early next year, but, you know, that's all a prediction. We don't know if it will actually end up being true. We do know there are certain things which work. We know masks work. 
you know um, hygiene works especially hand hygiene we know physical distancing works so i think it's equally important that uh, while we keep highlighting vaccines we need to ensure that people adhere to these you know we know that in settings where people have followed these religiously the chances of infection are lessened to a huge extent yes you know there are many modalities in the fray many drugs of various kinds which are in the fray and some of them are showing some promise but we don't have definitive evidence yet but it's also slightly different you know from a utility perspective which is to say that treatments are for those who are already infected right and you want to have a treatment which probably minimizes the impact of the disease and also minimizes possibility of having adverse events like serious hospitalization or death a vaccine uh, primarily is meant to be a preventive uh, modality which is to say that if we were to be vaccinated all the three of us you know it would minimize our possibility of getting the disease in the first place so you know if that is that would be true at the population level then it would mean that all of us in in the larger population would be much safer you know right or much more in a place where there is less a chance of anyone getting the disease which is why we do large vaccination programs in the first place with smallpox which is now eradicated now kids nowadays don't need to get vaccinated for smallpox because we managed to eradicate it through vaccination so the idea there being that if you are able to vaccinate large populations then you minimize the risk that people have disease in the first place which needs treatment but yes you know you have to balance it out and say there is an importance of both preventive modalities like vaccines as well as treatments being available and both have their place it's not an either or situation yeah lastly i think uh, one more thing that has occurred to me is over the course of this pandemic i think a lot of people have gotten closer or rather in touch with science and the importance of science and research and quality of research uh, do you think this is uh, likely to shape our perception about science itself maybe give people faith in you know medicine or research any new perspectives shaped by this pandemic well one would certainly hope so you know i think um, after the experience of this pandemic if people don't uh, realize the importance of public health of science of research these are extremely important for us um, as a nation in our own health security in our economic security in our social security then i think you know what else do you need to happen to ensure that right uh, so hopefully this will mean that all of us treat all of you know both health and science as a priority that it becomes a political priority when elections come politicians should be talking about what do they plan to do to invest more in health and science in a way that they have not done before you know there have been so many uh, instances where these have been second fiddle to a whole lot of other things and that's not the way to go you know as a nation if we want to continue on our development pathway then it's extremely important that we ensure that our populations are healthy that we have health systems which are resilient and that we have a strong investment in science are indeed so that you know we are able to better face situations like we are facing now so i think the lessons are there in front of us hopefully you know all of us will ensure that our politicians act on them yeah thank you so much uh, for joining us i think you answered a lot of our questions yeah. i am really glad that you came on well it was fun talking to both of you hopefully this will be something which will click well with your audience as well yes yeah. we hope so too so. thank you yeah. all right all take right. care bye for now have a good weekend